recording mode. Curtis Metcalf, Fresh My Fresh Podcast. I've had a day. I had a day of days. But all that aside, to get you episode 54, which is like a return. It is a true indeed a return to the classics. <laughs> oh, I like saying that. But a return to the foundation of what this podcast is about. Some sometimes I say that, you know, the whole this whole podcast was started because a question was asked. And the question was why does the South take credit for things that the West Coast has already done? Like independent off the trunk selling records, tapes and stuff. And very often I said, well, the independent game, the independent rap hustle isn't isn't cornered by, you know, it isn't, how should I say it? It's not pinned to a certain region. And to a cliche point degree, the rap game is like the crack game. If crack hit over here, then you know it's hustlers over here, and there's crack over here, then there's going to be that over there, and et cetera, et cetera, and the cashmere sweater. So that put the spark in my brain to start this podcast, generally talking about Southern rap, and not just the Southern rap that people either despise or love and overrate these days. I'm talking about 1986 to at least 1990, 1991. The era where people my age remember certain things. They remember groups like um, Gucci Crew 2, DJ Magic Mike and the Royal Posse, the the Enforcers, um, Success and the Fit, the Miami Boys, and they remember labels like Joy Boy Records, uh, Vision Records, Foresight Records, uh, Cheetah Records, JR Records, um, Pandisc. Uh, there's a couple more that slipped my mind. Um, you remember DJs like uh, Mr. Mix, DJ Magic Mike, DJ Laz. That's somebody else I'm forgetting. Dynamics 2, uh, MCADE, that's Gigolo Tony, that's, uh, what's my boy, Beatmaster Clay D, yeah, and all that, and all these, and all these folks have, like, small documentaries or something like that, you know, it's like, you know, I, I feel like it's an era where some things got captured. And some people are telling their stories. Oh, Jam Pony Express, DJ Fury. Yeah, that just popped in my head. Uh, Bass Patrol. Things like that. Um, DJ Lace. Uh, MC Madness, rest in peace. Um, Renard, Renault Regard. DJ said what? 
can't forget Ann Quinn. That's a lot of people. That's a lot of people in Florida alone. <laughs> and we go get to them. Um, of course, Luke Skywalker, two live crew. You know, shout out to everybody who knows that uh, Brother Marquise and Fresh Kid Ice actually started out on the West Coast as Rock On crew before they before they were discovered by Luke Skywalker and took a trip to Miami and the rest is history. Uh, we're going to touch us on MC Shadi got to be tough in the second segment of this, but uh, I want to touch on something that I was getting close to. I'm getting close to saying it. Um, fresh on my fresh, when doing the history of the rap, at first I was going from 1986 to a certain period, but and then at times I would focus on the breakthrough period where certain sudden artists were getting uh, mainstream shine and breaking through. So go back to 1991 when Ghetto Boys broke through. They had already broke through the national landscape, but this was like uh, being pinned as the cliche one hit wonders with my playing tricks on me back in 91. Um, and of course, as we all know, if you if you got if you got if you bought Ghetto Boys on cassette owning the CD and the wax, then you know they ain't, they're not one-hit wonders. They can't be one-hit wonders, especially when you got uh, Damn It Feels Good to be a gangster playing in films like Office Space. Mine's Playing Tricks on Me is their biggest hit, but isn't there's that's not the entire scope of the group. That was a time when they were banned in the U.S. But since we're speaking about rap a lot records, um, Devin the Dude Frequents, Mobile, the whole Gulf Coast, very regularly. And um, back in um, back in June, back in June he was here, and um, it was a an affair that actually involved a couple people I know. Um, the recently deceased FBJ, my my little homie, and um, and TJ Sohai, both of them was on. Both of them was on this pod, this very podcast, uh, a few months back. If y'all recall the Taco Tuesday episode where FBJ, uh, TJ was there too, and um, they opened for Devin to do like once before, and they was gonna open for him this past time, but um. The unfortunate demise of FBJ, it didn't cancel it, but it was kind of like a real sobering feeling to have uh, TJ right there do what he did right there at the show. Shout out to uh, Young Roe and uh, DJ No Sweat, who was doing the uh, who was doing the crowd control. Big step up, you know. We we all stepped up for our, for our fallen and made that show the success that it was. You know, we kicked it kicked it with a uh, a few of Devin's folks there. Um, bringing up Devin because we're gonna dip into the very first time you would have you might have heard him 
on wax on an album before and then and then again maybe you didn't and that's the bad history about rap a lot records rap a lot had was a major label but they had like underground label tendencies like if you lived in houston you seen the promotion of it outside of houston you ain't see too much of it and mobile was one of the biggest fan bases for rap a lot like ghetto boys came came down and did shows or whatever and then that was like a period of time like this period of time that we talking about right here like you talk about 1994 our squad's fat enough for everybody album came out like a good month before two two critical classic albums dropped in hip-hop and um in um Nas Illmatic and Outkast Southern Playlisted Music Southern Playlisted Cadillac Music excuse me Jug Mug, Rob Quest, and um, Devin, they were signed to rap a lot, like around 91. And it was a funny period right there because you had Ghetto Boys, uh, We Can't Be Stopped album. You had, you had Big Mike and 3-2 from the Convicts. They dropped the Convicts album uh, later that year. And they had some oddball. That, oh, wait, hold on. That was uh, OG style. OG style, I know how to play them. All these albums, in a way, planted the seed for the Odd Squad debut. Scarface called this album the best album that rap as a label has ever released. This is coming from the author of <laughs> Mr. Scarface's Back. Money and the power. You feel me? You know, face-to-face world is yours. The diary. This album dropped the same year as the diary. You know, some of us heard Devin on uh, the Ghetto Boys album, Till Death Do Us Part, on the Posse Cut, Bring It On. And they had they have a, uh, a Posse Cut on here. Uh, is it Come On With It? I'm coming with it. Hold on. I know this I know the title of Sasha wrote these titles down or uh, Came to Get Down, that's what it's called. Came to Get Down. And it's just as long. Like Bring It On was like eight minutes long. And Came Came to Get Down is short by like thirty seconds or whatnot. So um the one thing that stands out about Fat Enough for Everybody is that it's not uh, uh, a gangster album, and they actually let you know on the first, <laughs> on the very first song on here. Matter of fact, the intro to Oddness is like they something is uttered like when when Rapalot when Rapalot has the stamp on it, you know if it's coming from Rapalot, it's gonna be something. It's gonna be something good. And they had Rapalot had a funny period, just like how Def Jam had a funny period. For those of y'all familiar. Who keep up with it. Def Jam had a weird period between 90 and 93. Like you had the blockbuster LL Cool J Mama Said Knock You Out album. Uh, I believe Nicky D's album came out same year. Uh, Slit Rich second album. 
the rulers back. With so many, so many Slick Rick fans out there, people like fail to mention how that album is a classic. Like really, like really though, like it's on my list, <laughs> all time classic albums. Uh, and then you had groups like Downtown Science, Bosco Money, and Sam Silver. You know, real slept on album right there. Um, who else you had on there? Third base, third base, and then third base broke up. Search dropped a solo, and now all that was in between. Um, all that was in between Red Man's first and second album, Met the Man to Cal, uh, those two Terminator X albums, that uh, Public Enemy, Feel of a Black Planet, and Apocalypse '91. Like it was certain things that happened. It was certain things that happened that kind of like slipped through the cracks at Def Jam. Oh, uh, Greg Nice and Smooth B, and the damn thing changed. Um, and that was always funny to me because like WC and the Mad Circle dropped the album with the similar, with the same title and stuff that came in later in 91. 91 was a real transitional year anyway. But a lot of people would have missed that would have missed the i squad album had devin not continued to make guest appearances because like i said fat enough for everybody came out same year as a uh, scarface the diary and devin appears on hand of a dead body that features ice cube and everything so you know uh james prince knows James Prince knows talent, and I am going to fill in with something. I found a little ditty, some publishing Jeff Weiss. Um, I'm going to take a passage from Jeff Weiss's, uh, Jeff Weiss's article from a few years back. From 2014, about him. Uh, around the time of the 20th anniversary of um, Fat Enough for Everybody. I found out about Fat Enough for Everybody through like uh, the Eagle Trip Book of Rap List. It's listed, it's actually listed in the Eagle Trip Book of Rap List on, on the Bonus Beats chapter on the list called 20 Slept On Albums for That Ass. You know? Uh, group members Devin the Dude Rob Quist aka Blind Rob and Jug Mood let's see and get to the important parts for weeks Flyers touted my fault I skipped something for weeks, Flyers touted Curtis Blow as the celebrity judge. The winner was promised $500 and a contract to a 12-inch, but by showtime, the Bronx Lesnar behind the brakes, these are the brakes, had gone AWOL, and the college auditorium was empty. Save for the participants and a few family members, the show's director shambled aimlessly, biding time for Blow. Uh, give y'all some insight, some context to this Um this was a talent show, and it was held at Texas Southern back in 1989. Uh, 
the the whole odd squad before there was a group was in this talent show. Raised in St. Petersburg, Florida, Devin DeDue split his adolescence between Houston and Railroad Country, East Texas. After high school, he moved back to H-Town in search of a record deal in the 79 Seville. At this point, Devin's, or dude, Devin's dude archetype is as iconic in pop culture lore as Jeff Bridges. His solo catalog and hook on Dr. Dre's Fuck You. I just want to fuck you. Yeah, that was a lot of people's. A lot of people's joint right there off of Chrono 2001. All right. His solo catalog and hook on Dr. Dre's Fuck You gave him rap Hall of Fame credentials. But in the latter half of the 80s, he was Devin the Fat Square Twister, a b-boy known for popping, ticking, and gliding like an extra from breaking to electric boogaloo. He does that on stage occasionally, too. And the talent show seemed like a legit chance in the city, then lacking in established hip-hop infrastructure. So the excited team made a stop-and-pause cassette tape of Roger Trotman instrumentals to rap over, but as soon as he graced the stage, the heckling began. There I am with my beat tape and my furry kangol, and someone in the audience says, Who you think you are, Slick Rick? Recalls Devin, wheezing his molasses laugh. <laughs> he has the most photographic memory of anyone you will ever meet. He remembers gear details, dialogue, and the performance order from a talent show that occurred a quarter century ago, making him a one-man scientific study refuting claims that weed impairs your memory. He also does impressions with perfect, well, pitch-perfect cartoon mimicry. So I rap, it's not Slick Rick, it's this bit Dick Slim, and start dissing him back. Devin says, rapping the old boys. He gets upset and keeps talking shit. It was the longest three and a half minutes of my life. The judges weren't impressed. The day would have been completely worthless were were not for Quit's performance. I want to get everybody's attention. Right quick, the administrator called out to the yawning crowd before Quest got on stage. Do you think it's fair to let this guy participate in the talent show today? He pointed at a hazel-eyed 17-year-old clutching his mother's shoulder. It was Quest, afflicted by sarcoidosis and inflammation of the liver, kidney, and spleen. The disease had caused slow blindness since his diagnosis at age 12. Quest didn't look blind at all, so we were like, why shouldn't he be allowed to perform? What's going on here? Remembers Devin. No one had a problem, of course. No one even knew what he was talking about. So his mom let him go. He plugged in that beat machine, twiddled with the buttons, pressed start on that motherfucker, and nearly blew the speakers out. The dude continues. It was some hard NWA or public enemy type shit. He sounded like a mini ice cube. I'm like, what in the fuck? Everybody was tripping. And in my mind, I'm thinking, yes, sir, I agree. He shouldn't be allowed to compete in this talent show. <laughs> Quest's mom had forced him to sign up. Unable to play basketball or video games, music became a serious hobby shortly after the onset of blindness. Before beating Devin Copeland, though, Quest never considered doing it professionally. Out of that whole room of MCs, Devin was the only one who talked to me, says Quest, born Robert McQueen. Quest is at home in Houston, his voice several octaves deeper than his rapid-fire whistle in 94. The producer's rapper is in good health lately, after cirrhosis caused him to receive a liver transplant in 2011. Devin wanted a beat and asked if I wanted a beer, Quest asked. I told him that I live right around the corner. He was like, cool, I got a joint too. I told him I don't fuck with any of that shit, but let's go. The rest was history. This plotline theoretically mirrors a Reagan era after school special. 
the cool breakdancing rapper and the Kango play by Dougie Dude, be friends of Insecure Blind producer at a talent show, a young Jamie Foxx. <laughs> they both lose but derive strength by bonding through the power of music. The reality was more R-rated somewhere between Open Smoke, The Weird World of Blowfly, and Dance in the Dark. Until then, I was losing my... I was losing my sight and not going out much, says Quest. Devil was the first cat to embrace me and adopt me like a brother, teaching me how to dress and fuck with hoes. But the Eye Squad didn't form that first afternoon. It took Devin a year to convince his partner, Jug Mud, to see the light. Devin called me up the first day he met Rob and tried to get me to come over, but I was like a blind producer. Get the fuck out of here. Says Jugba, government named Dexter Johnson, who had been in various groups with Devin, including a breakdance crew called 3D and the more politically minded KKK, Crazy Kush Kings. But after I didn't go, he told me again, he continues, if you know Devin, you listen if he tells you something twice. It rarely happens. Quest's home studio became an unofficial hub of the Houston rap scene. Initially cutting records to cassette, the group quickly graduated to four track. With Devin's encouragement, the visually impaired producer seamlessly absorbed the arts of inhaling and rhyming. On any given day, UGK, Big Mellow, Big Mike, Gangsta Nip, and DJ Screw popped up at Oz Squad headquarters to torch Swishers of Skunk, Drain Forties, and Country Club in freestyle. It became Quest's turn to take the initiative. After several years of crate digging, producing, engineering, and home recording, he told his Oz Squad partner said it was time to step it up. They got a bio written, took press pictures, and finagled their way into a local art institute studio to cut the demo. DJ Screw scratched and cut on the record, an artifact since lost to the Bermuda Triangle of the Rapalot Archives. Like the Odd Squad, Screw's early sound genuflected to the East Coast Catholicism of Run DMC, Marley Maul, and Pete Rock. But the Odd Squad's lyrics and harmonies were closer to Southern Baptist going to sin. The trio behind your pussies like dope. And smoking that weed grew up and singing in the church choir. Devil was conscripted to croon after repeatedly falling asleep during services. His punishment ended up being the group's game with his filthy, wobbly hooks doubling as narcotic hymnals. We smoke on some Indian tribal shit and start humming old slave spirituals, Quit says, describing the genesis of the melodies. We do chants for ten minutes straight, almost like a trance. There's nothing remotely surprising about rappers singing in 2014, but when Fat Enough for Everybody dropped in February of 94, it was a fairly radical concept, lest you be deemed soft as PM Dawn. Prior to the Oz Squad, Rap-A-Lot built their reputation on Body in the Trunk gangster rap. Giffen had refused to distribute the Ghetto Boys, deeming their lyrics violent, sexist, racist, and, in- and indecent. Told y'all. Rap-A-Lot's most famous album cover picture Bushwick Bill, bloody bandage dripping from his shot-out eye, getting carted off from the hospital by Willie D and Scarface. James Prince made them take that picture for the shock. By contrast, Fadden's cover riffed on Ernie Barnes' sugar sack. Y'all know that picture. If you watch Good Times, it's the one where it's like, you know, at the end of the song... They zoom in right on the picture, you know. For years they had it, they had it be like uh, they had it posed as JJ did the did the picture, but it was really Ernie Barnes, and that picture has been used and imitated a bunch of times. Uh, Marvin Gaye's uh, "I Want You" album is where you know it originated from. Um, Ernie did um, 
a lot of uh, more covers with that same style and motif. Like, uh, there's a Curtis Mayfield album that he did, um, like in 1978, which incidentally is another record that, um, Camp Low, Camp Low sample, uh, Black, Black Nostalgia. <coughs> Excuse me. <laughs> this is good. <coughs> yeah, Camp Lou took Black Nostalgia from that Curtis Mayfield album. Um, and there's another, there's a, um, there's a Donald Byrd and 125th Street album from 79 that uses all, uh, that uses the talents of Ernie Barnes. <laughs> And the boy's been around. Y'all look him up. Y'all look him up. And the guy who did all the uh, all the funkadelic covers too. <laughs> Alright, by contrast, Fat Enough's cover Rift on Ernie Bond Sugar Sack, complete with psychedelic adubations of Devin, Rob, and Jug getting fucked up and <coughs> freaking excuse me. And freaking fleshy bow legged girls. Rap a lot signing the odd squad was like if Death Row released Bizarre Ride to the Far Side. Picture that. But label founder Jay Prince was immediately a fan. Only days after the label producer Crazy C passing the demo, Prince popped up at the group's place in the third ward offering a chicken lunch and a recording contract. It eventually turned out to be one of the most expensive albums released by the label thanks to the trio's tendency to write entire songs in rented studios. The Odd Squad's eyes of recouping royalties weren't aided by the multiple shots fired at radio stations and never played them, nor did it matter. Good luck finding an FM-friendly edit to the hooker for show. When you're trying to, when you fuck her over your for show pussy, trying to get some more pussy, you end up with no pussy. I think that was a radio edit to that, but <laughs> I even remember seeing the video back in the day and then reminded by it, like... I think it was, was it Old School Wednesday? Um, I seen, I remember seeing the video. This ain't no Mandela effect thing that we experienced going back to YouTube or something, you know? The course was a borrowed aphorism from Devin's older brother's friend, a pragmatic scene at all army veteran. You laugh at first, you laugh first, but on closer listen, for sure becomes one of the best anti-infidelity rap songs ever written. Just a few months after Snoop Dogg and Corrupt sneered their tenet of loving no hoes, Devin and the Oz Squad offered the corollary. A lack of loyalty might also leave you lonely and celibate. In Squad Slaying, weed was coffee, and they needed to have at least two or three cups in the morning. The cold word came from one of Devin's friend's dads who clandestinely sipped coffee on his porch. This is part of the genius of Fat Enough and Devin's solo work. The subject matter, the subject matter rarely extends beyond smoking and six, but the freaky tales of reincarnated wisdom make him seem part too short, part Dave Chappelle and part Glazed Buddha. With two decades of hindsight, Quest seems like the group's secret weapon. But at the same time, Jay Prince saw him as the masterpiece. I mean, centerpiece. The long video was for I Can't See It, a blind Rob solo track that battled his disease for raps about self-independence beatboxing and knocking peons off the box. If it were released in New York, 
it would have probably been a stretch and barbedo and your own TV raps feature in Houston. It was a regionally asymmetric curio. It's definitely going to be something different if it's on rapper. Like I said a disembodied promo voice on the album's intro track. That's why I tried to say earlier. This singularity is why Fat Enough holds up so well because, but it's also why it was impossible to market. It captures Houston rap and chrysalis, pre-codeine and screw, amidst his shedding of East Coast influences for indigenous Lone Star swing. With a few assists from Rapalot Studio Alchemist Mike Dean and N.O. Joe Quest's beats merge, boom bap drums, jazz, soul samples, vicious southern funk, and a live saxophone liquor too. <laughs> And this is the thing from a beat, from a beat uh heads perspective, a beat diggers perspective. They beat a lot of, our squad beat a lot of cats to the punch on 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 a lot of these beats. Um, jazz rendition, jazz rendition uh shares a lot with uh King Ten the Alcoholics. I got it bad, y'all. As far as like the origin of the sample, um. There's a couple other things. It's like uh Yeah, smoking that weed, smoking that weed. That's the uh Hamilton Bohannon. Nobody would touch Bohannon until like uh I wanna say what Jay Z Jay Z wasn't even the first one with Cashmere Thoughts. Yeah, he wasn't even the first one to uh to sample that. So Alright, uh Holes for Baby Streets, the same Isaac Hayes sample. That's a that's a key song too. And it's funny. He freaks the same Isaac Hayes sample that Public Enemy used on Black Steel in the Hour of Chaos, while Jazz Tradition bows at the altar of Cannonball Adderley and the Jazz Crusaders. Quest shouts out Showbiz and AG with beats hard enough to ostensibly qualify for Southern membership in DITC, while Judd Mudd added a necessary roughness. Devin was the star who always abides. Unless you were a collector willing to bid triple digits on eBay fat enough for everybody was barely heard outside of Houston until the dawn of Torrance. The group's only real promotion was a Midwestern rap-a-lot swing and three dates in Florida opening for Scarface. Even today, it's a gem often overlooked in favor of Devin's Doobie Ashtray era. You had to be up on Devin in the beginning, like Devin the Dude, which dropped in 98. It dropped right on the tail end, maybe a couple months after, uh, maybe a few months after. A few months after Scarface's My Homies compilation, I know it was in between the Scarface, My Homies, and the Ghetto Boys, The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. There was no sophomore album. Shortly after the Oz Squad began recording it, Scarface scooped up Devin for his fledgling face mob. That's what happens when you get the other side of the law. For those of you who remember that, that was deep off in 96, they dropped that. The dude's solo career sparked with 1998's blunt, simple, The Dude. But if you go through his catalog, nearly every one of his albums features at least one Oz Squad reunion. Both of his original partners remain integral members in Devin's Coffee Brothers clique. I didn't know it back then, but I know it now. I was in a group with two geniuses, says Jubba. Rod was the brains, Devin was the heart that pumps the blood, and I was the body. We were friends first, the music was second. That's why we're still a group 20 years later, no matter what. Maybe that quote seems a little boosterish. 
But I promise that when you account for two decades of bad rap industry contracts and backbiting, it's a miracle that any trio still records and tours together. The few who last are those with innate chemistry who weren't formed just to get ahead. Fat enough for everybody, it's the sound of friends making a party come to them, cracking hilarious jokes, reminiscing on the previous night's debauchery and sipping pots of coffee. The door is always wide open. No one's ever turned away. So with that, I say, digging into the album, there's 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 some skits that push the album along and don't take away from it. It's like a wow. It's, this album's like a it's like a down south bizarre ride to the far side is mentioned earlier like you know rap a lot signing them yeah rap a lot signing the high squad and dropping this album is similar to the four side signing with death row records and dropping bizarre ride to the four side here to little here to say a little something I, I mean i'm really hypnotized with these beats um like like other albums on rap a lot that focused on street tales and hustle and, and shot value all that was going on but these guys brought something different these guys brought something different along with the immature jokes if you was like 12 or 13 years old and heard this album you would get something you would you would you would get some new jokes some new material off of this some some more inside joke inside jokey joke but Let's see. I want to say, oh, I got a, I got a, um, I found something. I found the real Drew on here. The legendary Houston, one of, one of, one of the queens of Houston rap, Les Money. She's on the posse cut, uh, came to get down. And she's also, I believe she's also on Put Your Lips, Put Your Lips on the Knee. You know, providing a little battle of the sexes on the third verse on 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 put your lips on. Then there's jazz redemption and 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 the old weed coffee, uh, the aforementioned for show. The beats on here is banging, and you could tell like you know Rod Quest, Rod Quest and No Joe and Mike Dean. They had the chemistry similar to how Havoc had with uh, Q-Tip, with Q-Tip overseeing uh, some of the beats on the Infamous. You know, Q-Tip produced uh, Give Up the Goods, Temperatures Rising, you know, stuff like that. But at at the most, it like, you know, kept Havoc in line with the overall production and everything. So it's no it's no wonder why, like, Mike Dean is pretty much helping Kanye West with his past few albums and stuff. Uh, gross out moment on the album is the skit called uh, "Shit Pit," and that's that. That's a that's a term referring to anal sex. You know, I should have put a disclaimer <laughs> before I started giving my thoughts about the album for any of those who sensitive to that. You know, it's a, it's a, it's like some real comedy on here that deals with that. It's kinda like, you know, a Richard Pryor album and stuff. Like uh um and I just remember what they sampled for your pussy's like dope. 
I was just at the gallery today, and yeah, it's a it's a real dope version of a uh, people make the world go around. I ain't gonna give up the game on what they sampled. Also, on long time coming, long time coming is pretty much them messing around in the studio and stuff. So, if nothing was memorable about the lyrics, that's the beats that get it that hold it all together. But what's a serious anomaly about this album is is what it is. Um. The beats were dope. The beats were so dope, it ain't made you forget about. It didn't make you forget about the lyrics, but the lyrics are there. It's nothing real mind blowing out. It's just like okay, it's just like one of Rick James' earlier albums. Before you know, there was an album that he dropped before Street Songs, and that album didn't get attention. That's what made him go back in the lab harder to record street songs. And what came out of street songs is what popped off for him. So with Fat Enough for Everybody, everybody didn't get Odd Squad right then. And, you know, they was given the hacks. It's just like, it's just like, oh, I forgot Big Mike dropped in 94 too with something serious. When Big Mike, when Big Mike, uh, took off he was already signed he was already supposed to be a solo artist but between the convicts and being a member of the ghetto boys people don't talk about willie d enough leaving the ghetto boys after till death do us part i mean before did till death do us part that's the reason big mike was there and willie d willie d drop play with your mama on itchy button in 94 people don't remember that because Willie D dropped on Inchibun instead of rap a lot. But overall, this is a dope album. If for no other reason, Devin the Dude started, pretty much started his career with it. Then the Dr. Dre chronic 2001 happened. And then now, you know, now you got boom. Now you got, now you up to speed with just trying to live to the extreme and damn what's the album after that the one with uh what a job this is i forget the name waiting waiting to exhale waiting to exhale waiting to exhale one of them one of them but that's like your primer for devin the dude and coffee brothers y'all go listen to them you won't be disappointed um, been doing it for a long time. Give fat enough for everybody to listen. You might fall in love with it the first time. Maybe. Kind of. All right. In the first segment. Segment two. Gonna talk about another. What I feel is a foundational rap album for a lot of people who are fans of the form especially if you grew up in the south and if you grew up like me listening to WGOK Stereo 900 AM was a way. This is like really before I dove in to rap full time and stuff like I would hear stuff here and there hear stuff on the radio hear like LA Dream Team hear like the Fat Boys and stuff like like that you know what I'm saying wasn't really collecting the cassettes cause like I was let's see 86 I was 86 I was 8 years old 
So, I knew about Run DMC, but didn't know how important, like, Raising Hell was. I didn't know how important LL Cool J's radio was until I seen somebody my age have it at the back of the bus or something that was bumping Dear Yvette. With this one right here, um, it showed a lot of people it could be done. Uh, MC Shady got to be tough as the album I'm talking about. It came out uh, August of 87 on Luke Skywalker Records. And it proved to be a hit with uh, with the title track. And uh, there's other songs on here. There's other songs on here. I'm Not a Star was a one. I'm Not a Star was one. Uh, but uh, I Got to Be Tough. This was back in the era where it wasn't uncommon for an artist to put their uh to put the hit single being the first song on the album. Nowadays, like around the nineties, people didn't do that, but then some got some got away with it to where it didn't hurt the sequence of the album. Um MC Shy D with uh was Cool Kali on this album? But I know DJ Man. DJ Man was the man. DJ Man was the man. They love, they love uh, getting records. They love this record from from uh, Miami, Atlanta, where uh, where Shady is based. So let's get the history about Shady. I think I said this before uh, when I talked about success and effect. Uh, Shady, Shady is responsible for bringing DJ Toomp into this thing. You know what I'm saying? And DJ Toomp will be on the next album coming, correct, in 88. But for right now, you can say Toomp is in the background because I know Toomp was getting down back in 86 with Raheem the Dream and everything when it wasn't a whole bunch of rap in Atlanta. <laughs> first rap records in Atlanta probably started coming out in like 84 and it was like a slow crawl like you know there was Tony MF Rock who was um who kind of like opened the door for Atlanta artists and they was getting signed they was getting signed to uh they was going to going to Miami but MC Shad D uh relative cousin to Africa Bambada Zulu Nation Bronx River Holmes he says in the raps he comes and stays in Atlanta he uh assembles he's part of a uh, he's part of a bigger entity uh, and that's uh that's uh King Edward J King Edward J and the J team and uh King Edward J was the first guy in Atlanta to really do mixtapes and stuff. I don't know how this history escapes a lot of folks who really who really did Atlanta stuff. But you have to go back that far. You have to go back to the mid-80s with Atlanta. And Atlanta has their own scene. And they also served as a hub for a lot of Miami stuff. Um, with MC Shy D, MC Shy D gets signed to Luke Skywalker Records right at the start when they blockbuster with the Two Live Crew with Ann Quit with uh Ghetto Style, uh Lawan Love like DJ Man was doing double duty with uh Lawan Love and and Shy D, 
and he's all over this got to be tough album and stuff uh um mc shy d i had to go on i had to go on a website just a few days ago just to clear up some misconception about this album you know how you you could get on you could get on a website and anonymously do a review and say that you this record was trash this joint was i'm not going back to this one and all that effort into saying you know the internet you put a whole lot of effort on the internet to say you don't like something <laughs> all this word salad just because you don't like the record just pass it on by just pass it on by people have plenty of people have done that so me being the man that i am i went on ahead and did a review myself about the album and i was giving it more praise i was giving it more praise than anything um dj man cuts it up part two that's another one where it's like you know dedication to the dj back in the 80s people used to do that they had that one cut and people like shoddy did it different different than a whole bunch of people like like say dj jazzy jeff and the fresh prince they had touch of jazz on on the first album rock the house or whatever you know that wasn't the one that established that every group that had a DJ and it had a song that dedicated to the DJ, but it was just a customary thing to do. And this one came, this one came early in the album. It's the third, it's the third track. Uh, and it's DJ, DJ Man Cuts It Up Part 2. Part 1 must be on some 12 inch, some long 12 inch somewhere. Uh, you goes on to like what's what's the song? Paula's on crack. Paula's on crack. You got the you got the it was brash. It was, you know, the after school special. You got the uh the DMX you got the DMX beat popping and uh DJ Man is is queuing up the uh LL Cool J voice and like uh from I can't live without my radio, you know, could create a rock to beat with your head. He kept, kept, you know, Paula's on the crack attack. Rock, 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 rock. Like, some of these cuts is like, for folks who wanted to be DJs and stuff, you listen to this record. You listen to this record right here. Got to be tough was already one of those boombox classes. Like, you sit the boombox on the radio and you blast it. You blast it out the window and let everybody know you got the tape or whatever, you know. I I have a homie, Solomon Grundy. He said they was, it was a parade. They was like, had the record on the float. They had the record on the float. Like, they were copies. People, the radio station was had a float and they was giving away copies. He snatched it and ran all the way home with it. I remember posted it on Facebook one day saying that I got the record and brought him to that memory. I'm not a star's one of the singles. And um uh, there's a lot of there's a lot of East Coast tin stuff on here. Like imagine what Miami Base is really at the root is when when Africa Bambada and them Stop being at the forefront of that New York electro movement that they had in the early 80s. By the mid 80s, 
it got into what is known as the new school. Uh, Run DMC carried it on, even though they're considered old school. But like the Ultramagnetic, MC Shan, Marley Mall, Public Enemy type thing. Those type of beats. There's some of that on here, but then it's like, there's some real skate rink music going on, going on on here. A lot of cutting and scratching, which, I, which of course is what I love. Uh, Rap Will Never Dies, another one's like, you know, old to the old school. Dedication to the old school or whatnot, you know what I'm saying? Uh, silly Moment, Don't Take Me Seriously, it's like, uh, it's one of those things. It's one of those things where uh, Shady, it was like a filler cut. To tell you the truth, it's it's a it's a real filler, but it's a funny filler because it's the it's the next to last song on the album. Uh, the verses details, uh, first verse details that uh, DJ Man wakes him up because he got to because he got to catch a flight. They got to catch a flight to New York, and uh, he's halfway asleep. Get to the airport, make the flight. They get in the air, and Shadi orders all these, all these, uh, all these drinks, wine or something like that, and he ends every verse in particular because you know the first verse is because I'm scared. You had to hear it to believe it. The second verse, the second verse was like it wasn't him in particular, but. From not paying attention to the weather report, got your whole dress code twisted. And so that verse ends because it's cold. And then the next one, the next one turns back to him being the subject of the third verse. And um, smoking weed, smoking weed in the house. And his mama getting on him. His mama getting on him like, you know, you don't do, you don't smoke the weed in my house. So... He escapes the house, goes around the corner, hits her with his friend, say he got some smoke too. And then like uh he starts he starts having a spaz in the moment, so he's bugging at the end of it. And uh the end of the album off is I Will Go Off, which is like I feel like I Will Go Off is one of those routine songs that Shadi does because he did a newer version of it kind of like a remix he did a remix of this on uh on the next album and the next the next album coming correct in 88 is more like a uh it's more it's more smoother it's more structured and stuff it's like beats the beats is like oh man impeach the president drums chopped up on every on every song and stuff and with the with the uh cuts and everything uh there was a lot of Earth, Wind, and Fire, uh, Brazilian Ryan cut up on I Got to Be Tough and all that, you know? So it's, like I said, uh, every song on here just exemplifies the fact that the bridge was already connected between the East and the South. And people remember MC Shadi, you know? Um, he did two albums with Luke. He left Luke in, like, 89 or whatnot. Uh, maybe the paper wasn't right. I know there was like a whole lot of disputes or whatever lawsuits and stuff going on. And and Luke is getting, 
Luke and Mr. Mix and Brother Marquis, rest in peace to Fresh Kid Ice, they are actually really fighting and they almost got their music back. Like years ago, with the exception of MC Shadi, I think, I believe, don't quote me on this, is that uh, Luke Skywalker, well, Luther Campbell at least, is on the way to getting the whole catalog, the whole Luke Skywalker catalog back. Years ago, like back in like, I want to say 99, 2000, somewhere up in there, uh, Luke had to uh, file bankruptcy. I think he filed bankruptcy back in 95 or had to give up Luke records. I know he sold, he like sports had sold off the catalog, come to find out with uh, the guy who owns Lil' Joe Records. It was a bad deal to give away this music to begin with. So, you know, loopholes get caught up in this, gets taken back to court, and the judge finds it's not legally sound, and, you know, you got to give the music back. So, um, plus with other damages. But all the way with that, this was the start of a promising career. Uh, Shadi paid the way for folks. He opened the doors up for Atlanta, along with success and effect. And rap was alive in Atlanta. This is one of those things that um, outcasts talk about on ATL. I'll let y'all find out what songs they are that they're talking about. And what groups and what artists I know for a fact, Andre 3000s has met Tony MF Rock, who was signed to a Fit Records back in 89 and 90. And uh, he met Tony MF Rock and and told him, you know, you were one of my main inspirations for rapping. And Tony Rock, Tony Rock was from, not Tony Rock like Chris Rock's brother, but Tony MF Rock was one of those guys who like, Drop a dope tape, and most of the world don't remember it because it was in this pocket of time, the way he dropped something. But long story short, MC Shadi's got to be tough as one of those foundational rap albums for people who grew up rapping, who grew up wanting to rap, and ended up rapping later. Now, especially me, and um. I'm going to leave some questions at the end of it. Like, you know, what was the first Southern rap album you heard? Have you ever heard of um, Devin the Dude before before uh, I Squad? Before you heard Devin the Dude? Um, and what was the first Southern rap, rap record that you heard that wasn't Outkast, that wasn't, you know, that wasn't um, Lil Wayne or something? You'll see it in the Q and A. Please, and, and, uh, please answer the questions and just donate to the cause. Donate to the cause, man. Um, you can inbox me. Uh, you can you can hit up Curtis underscore Metcalf one on Twitter because I refuse to call it X. Phony start, phony start dealings, and um, y'all keep. The faith be blessed and keep the love going. Peace.